Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by my favorite college in America, Hillsdale College, which proudly refuses every penny of government funding to remain independent. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. Here's what I wrote. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution states in part, that no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, not a prosecutor, a grand jury, that is, citizens. Is that what happened when Special Counsel Jack Smith and the Biden Department of Justice used a Washington, D.C. grand jury to charge former President Trump for alleged crimes that occurred in Florida? In the so-called documents case? clearly using the wrong venue in violation of specific DOJ policy, then hastily move the case to a grand jury in Florida? The protection afforded uh, by a fair grand jury proceeding dates back many centuries to the Magna Carta. It was prominently implemented by British and American courts applying Blackstone's legal doctrines. The notion that any grand jury would indict a ham sandwich refers to the usual adoption by grand juries of evidence presented by a prosecutor. It should not eradicate a right that was deemed important enough to be included in the Bill of Rights. The public and the courts must realize that these are accusations crafted and made by the individual prosecutors and not the result of deliberations and subsequent decisions by a group of ordinary citizens. Since the Florida grand jurors did not hear the testimony presented in the D.C. grand jury, exactly what did they hear or see to charge the former president and the other defendants? Was the D.C. testimony read to them? What were they instructed about the D.C. testimony? Were they asked whether they had any questions for the witnesses who testified? Were they instructed on the need to find probable cause as to each of the defendants? Were they instructed on the law? The customary procedure in cases of obvious crimes is just to submit an indictment drafted by the prosecutor to the grand jurors and ask them to vote up or down. When the charges are not about an obvious crime and are instead much more complex, such as in the so-called documents case, The constitutional right to be indicted by a grand jury must require more than that. Indeed, the D.C. grand jury met for many months, heard from many scores of witnesses, and was presumably provided with an enormous amount of so-called evidence presented to it by the government. We already know from the subsequent public record in the court proceedings in Florida that the government has turned over to the defendants uh, over one million documents and nine months of videotape, which will be used in a whole or part during the trial. From that, plus the complexity of the law in this matter, the fact that this is a case of first impression, 
There are numerous legal and constitutional issues associated with using the Espionage Act against a former president, the Florida grand jury, not having the benefit of seeing and hearing firsthand any of the witnesses, etc. The government would have been required to ensure that, in fact, the Florida grand jury, and not the government, indicted the former president based on probable cause. A requisite for each and every of the nearly 40 counts. You understand, Mr. Producer? The government doesn't indict. The grand jury does. But if you just go through the motions in a case like this, and it's really the government, then the indictments are defective. Because under the Bill of Rights, the Fifth Amendment, it's a grand jury that indicts based on probable cause. It's not in there for fluff. Although the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, Rule 6, impose a secrecy requirement on federal grand jurors, the judge should, that is Judge Cannon in Florida, now that the indictment has been returned, permit defense counsel to interview the grand jurors and release them from any secrecy obligation. Of course, the lawyers down there need to file a motion, which I guess they will eventually, God willing. That is the only way to discover, before the defendants are forced to a trial, whether the Fifth Amendment's obligation has been satisfied. And again, given how Smith used the D.C. venue, and a D.C. grand jury can deduct a very extensive investigation on matters related almost exclusively to events in Florida. This is an especially important issue. In all four cases involving the indictment of President Trump, the media have repeatedly reported that Trump has, quote, been indicted by a grand jury, unquote. The real question is whether the grand juries truly deliberated or simply went through the motions at the direction of the prosecution. Did a majority vote to accuse Trump and all his co-defendants of the complex crimes alleged in the indictments? Or was it window dressing for what happened in these secret proceedings? Another obvious example is the case in Georgia. The indictment is 98 pages in length and involves over 40 charges. And moreover, in addition to the individual charges, an umbrella charge of grand conspiracy, that is a so-called RICO charge, is alleged, involving up to 19 co-conspirators, including the former president. This is an extraordinarily complicated factual and legal indictment, putting aside the obvious substantive weaknesses of the case. And in this case, like the federal documents case, the prosecution has much to answer for. Recall that on the day the grand jury was to meet to vote on whether to indict, the actual indictment was published by the court clerk on the official website before the grand jury had even met, let alone voted. Before they met, let alone voted. Later that day, D.A. Fannie Willis held a press conference playing up the fact that the 19 defendants were accused, who were accused had been charged by named ordinary citizens of the grand jury. Although under Georgia law, she could have filed the charges without a grand jury endorsing them. Since she claimed the indictment was in fact the work of the grand jury, the question is whether it was. From the moment the indictment was posted on the clerk's official website that morning, Willis moved at a frenzied pace to get an indictment that night. Exactly what happened in that courtroom, excuse me, in that grand jury room? What kind of deliberations occurred? 
Again, the issue is probable cause and whether the defendant's due process rights were abridged. In Georgia, the grand jurors are free to speak publicly. We saw that earlier when in a prior investigative grand jury, the foreman, remember that woman, went on TV after its proceedings concluded and would not stop talking about what occurred among grand jurors, and she did so gleefully. It shouldn't be difficult for defense counsel to get to the bottom of what occurred. And by the way, not just the president's lawyers, defense counsel for all. All the uh, defendants. In the Manhattan case, when D.A. Alvin Bragg officially filed his indictment, he accompanied it with a prosecutor's statement that the media accepted as part of the grand jury indictment. It was certainly presented that way. The question is whether the Grand jurors actually voted on it. New York imposes a secrecy requirement on grand jurors, but that requirement makes sense while the grand jury is considering criminal charges. Should it apply to prevent disclosure of how the prosecutor instructed the grand jury in the law and to discover whether the grand juries did in fact consider whether there was probable cause to make the criminal allegation? And was Bragg's accompanied statement part of the proceedings? Finally, in the second federal case, supposedly involving January 6th, President Trump is not charged with insurrection or sedition. Yet when the special counsel, Jack Smith, made his remarks announcing the indictment, nearly half of his statement had no relevance to the charges brought by the grand jury. He said in part, and I quote, The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia and sets forth the crimes charged in detail. I encourage everyone to read it in full. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies, lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. The men and women of law enforcement who defended the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are heroes. They're patriots, and they are the very best of us. They did not defend a building or the people sheltering in it. They put their lives on the line to defend who we are as a country and as a people. They defended the very institutions and principles that define the United States, unquote. Again, this is a wide-ranging public condemnation of the former president, in which Smith all but accuses the former president of insurrection and sedition for which he was not charged. Indeed, the charges are based on the 1871 Ku Klux Klan law, the post-Enron statute, and a financial fraud law that is used mostly in cases where contractors and others swindle the federal government. Exactly what information was presented to the grand jury in Washington? And what did Smith tell the grand jurors when they were urged to charge the former president? Did Smith use arguments about insurrection and sedition? to persuade the grand jurors to vote for these other charges? This is a critical point. It appears that Smith played fast and loose with the law and the facts, which does not meet the requirements for bringing charges that meet the probable cause standard. The grand jury process is intended to protect an individual's due process rights. Indictments are to be brought by ordinary citizens sitting as jurors. The government has provided the jurors with witnesses, information, and an explanation of the relevant law. 
so that the citizen jurors are making their decisions based on a true, accurate, and honest presentment. When this process is violated by politically motivated prosecutors, as with Bragg and Willis, or a prosecutor with a long record of abusing the criminal justice system, as with Smith, it is especially important that the Fifth Amendment not be abused and violated, and used not to protect an individual, but as a cudgel by the government intended to imprison his targets. That is, their targets. It is relevant to note that all three prosecutors had the grand jury's vote smack in the middle of a presidential election, and all have demanded trials within months of the indictments. That is, for the maximum political damage to candidate Trump and maximum political benefit to candidate Biden. The use of these grand juries, where there is obvious evidence of chicanery by these prosecutors, must be scrutinized at the front end of these various cases. Thus, the question I have, where the heck are the lawyers? Apparently, this statement I make is upsetting some of the lawyers, Mr. Producer. Well, get off your ass and do something. This juncture of the process is highly significant. In fact, listen... The Supreme Court has held that the defendant loses any right to challenge the grand jury process, at least at the federal level, once a trial is held on the indictment. So once you start the trial and you haven't raised this issue, you are, as we lawyers called, stopped from raising it later. So you've got to raise it before the trial. This is why I put it out publicly. I don't advise any of the lawyers for anybody unless I do it publicly where you read it, on radio where you hear it, on TV where you see it and hear it. A friend of mine contacted me today about another idea, and it's a great idea, but I'm going to wait for the next day or two to tell you about it. As you can see here, these trials are not only piling up, but these judges are willingly being used as pawns in the Biden Justice Department scheme. That is, these judges don't have to hear these cases now. In fact, I cannot think of a single legitimate, legal, or constitutional reason that these judges have to hear these cases in six months or eight months and can't wait till after the election. I can think of a dozen political reasons. But not one single legitimate, legal, or constitutional reason. In the Hunter Biden case, they allow statutes of limitations to run. That's not even possible with the allegations made against Donald Trump. Because those statute of limitations run through the election period. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? 
Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Ro Conan is a uh, Democrat from California, and he had this to say on the morning schmo. Cut six, go. What we should be doing in the House is talking about economic costs, child care costs. Instead, this speaker is not focused on the issues that people care about. I didn't get one question in my town hall uh, last night on Hunter Biden or Joe Biden. And that's because the American people know the facts. Joe Biden, there's not a single shred of evidence that a single payment went to President Biden. All right, let's stop. It's very funny how they do this. When they're in power, they don't really care what the people think. They just press hit. But I want to say something to you, Ro. There's no evidence that Joe Biden took a dollar. Every allegation against Donald Trump has nothing to do with Donald Trump taking a dollar. There is overwhelming evidence that Joe Biden was a co-conspirator in violation of FARA. That his son did not register as a foreign agent. And we have on the record testimony taken under oath by his former partner and others that Joe Biden was at at least 20 phone calls with the speaker on when he knew his son was talking to a foreign individual or foreign agent or foreign government official about business. That's enough to violate the FARA. And you don't actually have to have a mens rea, that is a specific intent to violate it. You violate it, you violate it. You don't register, you don't register. That's how it works, Ro. Now, you went to Temple University, I understand, same as I did. Did you pay attention to what you were being taught? What were you doing exactly? And so this, you don't even have to take a $1 payment, as I've told the Republicans on the Hill when they come on this program. Joe Biden is a co-conspirator in Hunter Biden's violations of the FARA. That's good enough. It's good enough to take down Paul Manafort and others. It's good enough to take down Hunter Biden and his daddy. As for what your people want to hear... You don't tell them the truth. You don't tell them that you voted for massive spending bills that have caused inflation. You don't tell them that you're responsible for the gas prices going through the roof because you're a climate change fanatic. You don't tell them that you're responsible for food prices going through the roof and gasoline prices going through the roof and the destruction of energy independence. You don't tell them a damn thing at that town hall meeting. Certainly don't tell them the truth. You pose as a moderate, but you march in line, don't you, brother? Meanwhile, anybody who questions the Biden crime family, the evidence is overwhelming that they had interactions with foreign governments and foreign governments paid them millions. Ro, where did the money go? You have any interest in knowing where over $30 million went? No, you don't. Mark Levin.
You're listening to the best of Mark Levin. The Fifth Amendment to your United States Constitution states in relevant part this. Ready? Quote. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime. Here's the kicker. Unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. In other words, you're to be indicted by a grand jury of citizens, not by the prosecutor, not by the government. And haven't you heard the reporters say the grand jury brought back an indictment with 2,800 charges? Is that what happened when special counsel Jack Smith and the Biden Department of Justice violated Department of Justice rules, used a Democrat grand jury in Washington, D.C., with a Democrat motions judge, last name Hal, first name Beryl, who used to work for Patrick Leahy, appointed by Obama. Is that what happened in the documents case? A grand jury in Washington, D.C. votes to indict on matters involving events in in Florida, in West Palm Beach. Can you imagine if that is permitted by U.S. Attorney's Office, all 93 of them, and the thousands of assistant U.S. attorneys that are out there, that they're free to just pick a venue where they think they can get an indictment and then ship that indictment off to their to the jurisdiction where the events occurred and basically ask that grand jury to rubber stamp it? Isn't the rule at the Department of Justice not an opinion? Isn't the directive at the Department of Justice intended to avoid all of that? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. Don't ever listen to MSNBC or CNN for legal advice or legal information. On a nightly basis, they're committing malpractice. They just are. They have the lowest of low lives there who give commentary. Stupider than hell. Now, when this case was moved from Washington, D.C. to a Florida grand jury, all we heard was the Florida grand jury voted to approve the grand jury charges, the indictment, in Washington. It took about a week. Now, the grand jury in Washington heard testimony for over two years. They saw an endless conga line of witnesses. They looked at an enormous amount of documents. They looked at videotape. What exactly did the grand jury in Florida see or hear? What exactly was that grand jury told? Despite what some of the legal analysts may have said to you, it's not good enough to move a, an indictment to another jurisdiction and give it sort of a surface-level polish and then, and then ask the grand jury there to vote for it. That's not what the Fifth Amendment means. Did any of those grand jurors have any questions? Did any of them ask about any of the witness testimony that occurred in Washington? Again, this is why you're supposed to use the proper venue. Were there any documents that were highlighted? Any documents they asked to read? 
Any video they asked to see? I'm guessing no. Because it happened too fast. I'm guessing they went through the motions. There wasn't a lot of substance. The protection afforded by a fair grand jury proceeding dates back to the Magna Carta. Was adopted by British and American courts applying Blackstone's legal doctrines. Blackstone being a brilliant lawyer who wrote what's we lawyers in our Blackstone's Dictionary on the Law and so many other treatises. So the notion that any grand jury would indict a ham sandwich involves cases that are more garden variety, unfortunately, but nonetheless. Where the law is not complex, where the violations are fairly routine, and so forth and so on. That's not this case. This is a case of first impression. The Espionage Act has never been used this way against a former president. A former president's never been indicted before. And on and on and on. This is a one-off. It's not a garden variety criminal case. Is it Judge Chunkin? Obviously this isn't her case. But the question is, what happened in that grand jury room in Florida? Now, we have secrecy rules, Rule 6E, on federal grand juries, but that, that's only applicable while the grand jury is actually doing its business. In this case, the grand jury's business is over. So there's no harm done. If a motion is filed by defense counsel, again, in Judge Cannon's court, Raising the exact questions that I'm raising. Based in part at least. But significant part. On how the government, the DOJ, Garland, Smith. You know, the mob. How they took all, they took all the witness testimony. All the, the documentary information. All of it. Done in the wrong venue. Intentionally. The Florida grand jury didn't have the benefit of any of that. They're picking up the crumbs. Well, that's not good enough under the Fifth Amendment. We know that from past litigation, court rulings, particularly the Supreme Court. So there's a motion there. Prosecutorial abuse of the grand jury process. That's the motion. And Jack Smith, sadly enough, has made it relatively easy to make that case. And the Supreme Court has ruled that you've got to make that case before the trial begins. Because after that, you can't make the case. You're stopped. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense to raise it after the trial begins. You've got to raise the fact that you were unconstitutionally indicted before the trial based on those charges takes place. And so we're at a juncture now where that needs to be done relatively quickly. 
That's not the only place where there was prosecutorial abuse of the grand jury process. In Georgia, you don't have to use a grand jury to bring an indictment. Prosecutor can do it him or herself under Georgia constitutional law. But if you choose to use the grand jury, it cannot just be window dressing for a prosecutor who's actually bringing the case. You have to make a choice. Now, Fannie Willis, the daughter of a Black Panther, she made a choice. It was going to be the grand jury. But something happened. The clerk of the court on the official website published the indictment with all the charges against Trump and the 18 other co-defendants early in the morning before the grand jurors even entered the courthouse, let alone voted. Well, how did that happen? Well, the clerk of the court didn't sit there and write the charges. She was handed the charges from the prosecutor's office. And she downloaded it into the system. She accidentally pushed the button that put the charges on the website. Now, having done that, the question is raised. In the room just came the smartest lawyer I know. Now she's leaving. The question is, what happened in that grand jury room? Did they go through the process, the kind of process I just discussed with you? That's an awfully long indictment, 98 pages and 41 charges or so. I doubt it. It would have taken an hour or two just to read the text of what was given to the clerk, to the grand jurors. But wasn't it weird at night they brought the he announced the vote and brought the formal charges against President Trump and the other defendants. Wasn't it weird how desperate she was to get this thing done that day after the publication of the indictment? So why did she do it that way? Because she knew she blew it. The jig was up. A grand jury in my estimation, didn't deliberate like a grand jury is supposed to. She announced not only that the grand jury had met, they took a photo, she put out their names, said ordinary citizens brought this indictment. Did they? Now what you also have in Georgia is a wonderful opportunity for any of the defense lawyers of any of the 19 defendants. They don't have grand jury secrecy rules. Kind of weird, but they don't. Remember that idiot that was going around who'd been the foreman of the investigative grand jury and she was all over TV and one party went to court and said, Judge, you got to shut her up. He said, no, under, under Georgia law, she can do whatever she wants pretty much. So defense counsel have a golden opportunity to ask the court for the right to question a number of these grand jurors to find out what took place to see if that grand jury indictment, quote-unquote, was in fact a grand jury indictment, or whether it was window dressing. You see, ladies and gentlemen, to me, 
This is legal hand-to-hand combat now. I don't need to hear from legal analysts who think that this charge is a good one. And I don't need to hear from blunderbusts like Bill Barr who, you know, this just teaches you don't screw with the government and I'll jump off that bridge when I get to I don't want to hear that crap. What's taking place here is outrageous, despite their hate for Trump. These are battles for the times, meaning for all the years this republic has left. Not just for today. Mark Levin. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. How many out there are capitalists? That is... You believe in private property rights, you believe in entrepreneurship, you believe in innovation and productivity. How many of you believe that because we're capitalists, that our country has been the most prosperous on the face of the earth? How many of you believe that thanks to capitalism as opposed to big government and socialism and so forth, we have things that no human beings have ever had on the face of the earth in the past or today. Food, you know, automobiles, homes, drugs. How many of you think that government is competent? How many of you think government creates shortages like baby formula and so forth? Energy? How many do you think the smartest minds in industry Work in the bureaucracy. Well, we know hundreds of billions of dollars every year are lost by the federal government through waste, fraud, and abuse. Not particularly efficient, is it? Well, then how come so many of you want government to effectively, through the back door, take over the pharmaceutical company? Do you think they'll do better with that? than they would with gasoline or food? Would you want to turn over our food production system to the Department of Agriculture? We'll starve to death. They already run immigration. How's that working out? Education, how's that working out? You know, we have the radical left, the Democrat Party, the Marxists, who don't understand economics, but they understand voting and elections. And so they do things not because they're smart, not because they're right, not because they'll work, but because the Democrat Party wants permanent power. So anything goes. But how do you explain these so-called populist conservatives? Which is oxymoronic, by the way. How do you explain that? In other words... Both of them go after pharmaceutical companies. Who do they think invests in pharmaceutical companies? Your pension plans. Who do they think works for pharmaceutical companies? Your neighbors. How do they think we get these cutting-edge drugs? With the investment of billions and billions of dollars, they've been trying to find, as an example, treatment for a cure for Alzheimer's. 
They might be close, but this has been going on 20 years where they've been spending hundreds of billions of dollars. Usually to no avail. Now there's a reason I'm telling you this. I want to read you a piece by Giovanni Cafario. Giovanni Cafario. Uh, I believe he's Italian. And he writes his own opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. They don't write it, he writes it. Talks about the high cost of price controls and Eliquis and other drugs. Eliquis. You need to listen to this. says, for years I visited my father in Italy. He would ask me about a drug that my company, Bristol-Myers Squibb, was developing. It was an anti-clotting medication. My father's interest was personal, even though he was a physician. He was at risk of a stroke because he had atrial fibrillation, a kind of irregular heartbeat. To contain that risk, he took warfarin to prevent the blood clots that lead to stroke. Warfarin, which was developed more than a half a century ago, isn't a perfect medicine. Too little and it won't work. Too much, the risk of bleeding complications becomes untenable. Weekly blood work and frequent physician monitoring are required with warfarin. For decades, researchers sought a better solution. Then after many decades, 1995 brought a breakthrough. Research at Bristol Myers Squibb developed a new type of blood thinner, which targets a protein involved in blood clotting called factor XA. The new approach didn't require warfarin's monitoring and dose adjustments. Early on, my father quizzed me about the clinical trials for our compound, later named Eliquis. After the FDA approved the medicine in 2012, now, it takes years typically to get FDA approval. It's not like one of these vaccines they push out the door. It can take 10 years. So after the FDA approved the medicine in 2012, he asked when it would be available in Italy, where, because of strict price controls, it wasn't reimbursed as quickly in the United States as in the United States. It became available for reimbursement in Italy for a trial fibrillation in late 2013. Over the past 11 years, Eliquis has benefited an estimate 40 million patients worldwide. While well, Eliquis is now in the news again, it is among the first 10 medicines subject to, quote, negotiations under the Inflation Reduction Act to determine what Medicare will pay for. You see what they stuff that law with? Climate change, price controls. Now listen to me. Contrary to how it's been framed, the Inflation Reduction Act's drug pricing program doesn't involve negotiated negotiation in any ordinary sense of the word. If a drug developer disagrees with the dictate price, Our only options are to pay impossibly high penalties or withdraw our medicines from Medicare and Medicaid altogether. That's not a choice. We'd never do that to our patients. So that essentially lets the government set any price it chooses. In making matters worse, the Inflation Reduction Act will force drug makers to agree, quote-unquote, that the dictated price is the, quote, maximum fair price, unquote, no matter how unfair the price may be. Again, when you read The Democrat Party Hates America, focus on the chapter that talks about 
how they use language and phrases in ways that advance their cause and destroy the actual language and phrases. So they talk about agree when in fact there is no agreement. They talk about a maximum fair price when in fact it's not a fair price. Says the law will end up discouraging the development of oral drugs that help millions of elderly patients in the U.S. Now why would that happen? (coughs) Why would that happen? Because ladies and gentlemen, they have price controls in Venezuela. They have price controls in Cuba. They have price controls in every totalitarian regime, which is why people are starving, which is why they don't get access to medicines, which is why there's no development of new medicines, new technologies, and new products. We don't have price controls on fuel. If we did, you'd freeze to death. You'd freeze to death in the winter and sweat to death in the summer. Price controls. The Inflation Reduction Act arbitrarily offers less protection to quote-unquote small molecule medicines, including those taken in a pill or capsule, than to large molecule injected or infused medicines, thereby penalizing the development of treatments that are more convenient for patients. You know, let's take a pill for this. There's going to be less of that now. It also targets treatments that help many older Americans, sending a signal that industry should walk away from medicines for the elderly. We think that's wrong. Now, he may think that's wrong, but that's going to be the consequence. Why? Let me tell you the truth. Medicare and Medicaid, they need to slash their costs because they're going bankrupt. Rather than adjust and reform the programs, they need to slash the costs. So if they can drive up, that is, discourage uh, the production of medicines, particularly for the elderly, where they become cost prohibitive because you put these profit caps on top of them, your parents and grandparents are the ones who are going to suffer. They're not only not going to be able to get new drugs, they're not going to be able to get the drugs they're on right now. Eloquist is at the top of the government's list, not because its price is high, but rather because so many Americans on Medicare, more than 3 million, rely on it to reduce the risk of stroke and other conditions. Though frequently prescribed, Eloquist ranked 540th among Medicare Part D drugs and Medicare spending per patient, in 2021, so it's a relatively inexpensive drug. But it helps millions of elderly, in particular. Seniors on Medicare pay on average $55 a month for the drug. Half of all eloquent patients pay $45 or less. They're targeted because of its broad use by seniors. Remember when... uh, Obama was putting in Obamacare. And remember what that crackpot brother of his chief of staff said about the death of seniors and so forth. I've told you over and again, the Democrat Party doesn't care about people. When you watch what they do, you just keep in mind, they don't care about people, they care about power. So here you have an inexpensive drug that saves the lives of people, particularly seniors, who need to thin out their blood in order, frankly, so their heart functions the way it needs to function. 
Makes no sense, he writes, to take a medicine that's already priced based on the value it delivers and demand even greater concessions. Especially given that there's no requirement that the insurance companies that that administer Medicare will pass any new savings to the patients. I share the concerns that our current system asks seniors to pay more for medicines than for other health care expense. As an industry, we're open to reforms that address these uh, challenges, but the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act are backward. We should want more effective and safer medicines, more medicines for America's seniors, more easy-to-take options. Instead, this sort of Washington regulation will force innovative biopharmaceutical companies to make gut-wrenching choices about research and investment priorities. In other words, they're not going to invest in the areas that the government's controlling because they don't want to go broke. It's like these utility companies that are not able to maintain their, their, their infrastructure because they're being forced to invest in climate change. Similar, in part, what happened in Hawaii. At least that's part of what contributed to it. And what they're saying is, we'll go broke. We can't go broke if we lose money on every pill. Because the government isn't really negotiating. They're dictating what we can charge. This is a Bernie Sanders initiative. This won't crush innovation entirely. In a couple of months, I will retire as CEO. And I know that the people working in our labs will never give up. Biopharmaceutical researchers are achieving medical breakthroughs that would have seemed like miracles a generation ago. But these steps forward aren't miracles. They're the inevitable result of a deep understanding of biology and a commitment to improving patients' lives. The question then isn't whether the engines of innovation America is known for throughout the world will continue. Instead, the question is whether bad policy will end up steering that innovation in ways that harm patients rather than help them. Many people are very short-sighted. Yes, I want cheaper drugs, cheap, cheap, cheap. This is a fairly cheap drug considering the benefit. There are drugs out there that are two, three, five, ten thousand dollars a pop. Why? Some of them are relatively new. Some of them deal with very rare diseases. You want to see where this administration is taking us? Look at Britain. They will not develop uh, medicines or treatments for rare diseases. They make a cost-benefit analysis based on what the bureaucrats determine is important and how the bureaucrats determine to keep the National Health Service afloat. It's a bureaucratic nightmare. So if you have a rare disease and a drug costs like 10, 15, 20, thousand dollars Britain doesn't bother also what they don't talk about and they're never going to and many of you are probably not inclined to hear this every single major drug I'm not on the drug company's payroll I'm not running drug company ads on this program I'm just making a point because I'm a capitalist which means I believe in humanity the drug companies collectively spend 20 billion dollars in helping patients that can demonstrate that they truly cannot afford the drugs, that their income level is such. Now, a lot of people play the system. They lie about their income. I'm not talking about you, but a lot of people play the system. They lie about their income or they'll move assets, you know, to a relative, a kid, or whatever. But the drug companies don't even really 
work that hard to vet that. You fill out a form. You send it in the drug company. It's signed by your doctor. It's really quite easy. I haven't done this, but I've gone through this, understanding this process in these prior debates we had on Obamacare when I've talked to these companies and I've talked to these doctors. And you get the drug for free. For as long as you can demonstrate that you need it. So that cost is built into their overhead too. So what drugs are they talking about? Eliquis, you heard. Jardins from Eli Lilly, a diabetes treatment. Um, Behringer, Engelheim, and Genevia from Merck. They made the list, also known as Amgen's autoimmune disease treatment. Enbrel and Tresto from Norvitis, which is used to treat heart failure. Other drugs on the list, AstraZeneca's diabetes and heart failure treatment, Farziga. The blood thinner, I can't pronounce them all, Xarelto. The blood cancer treatment, Imbruvica. And its biggest seller, Stellara, an IV treatment for psoriasis and other inflammatory disorders, and the list goes on. So what you're going to see now is a tremendous shortage of these drugs. That's what you're going to see. And now a, a tremendous shortage of new drugs. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. More outrageous rulings out of this cabal of radical left-wing Democrat judges in Washington, D.C., as you know, when I wrote the book, The Liberty Amendments, I came up with a number of amendments that I thought, through the Convention of States, we should try to adopt in order to get our Constitution, our Republican back. Because they've been eviscerated. They've been obliterated. But I want to suggest something that the Republicans in the House of Representatives could do right now. It may not be accepted by the Senate, it may not be accepted by Biden yet, but there are two ways to deal with that. Keep pounding at the door until something that seems impossible one day becomes reality. And number two, attach to every major piece of legislation wording that I'm going to discuss with you right now. Mark, what are you talking about? Ladies and gentlemen, the, the courts in the District of Columbia are runaway courts. If not all, most of the judges, that is, radical, Democrat, left-wing, in some case, Marxist lawyers, put on that black robe, are called your honor, and are given the kind of respect they do not deserve. Because they disrespect you, they disrespect defendants, they disrespect the rule of law, they are interfering in a presidential election, they are interfering in the, in the justice process, they know what they're doing, they talk to each other, it is a cabal. 
It is a cabal at the district court level, a.k.a. the trial level. It is a cabal, <coughs> excuse me, at the circuit court level, that is the appellate level. Now, under our Constitution, under our Constitution, Article 3, Section 1. Funny how I refer to the Constitution all the time, isn't it? The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. And in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. And shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. They put that last part in there so judges wouldn't be threatened or intimidated by having their salaries reduced or removed. That's quite irrelevant here. In other words, Congress has created and does create every federal court below the Supreme Court. The Constitution actually creates the Supreme Court. Congress creates those courts. Congress also has the power to determine if those courts do or do not have judicial authority over a certain subject matter. Did you know that? Since the ratification of the Constitution, excuse me, Congress has created these various courts, these districts, There are 12 circuit districts. There are 94 trial districts. Congress created every one of them. If Congress wanted to deny authority in certain subject matter, a certain subject matter jurisdiction, it has the power to do that. Constitution gives them that power. It's a direct grant. Now you know why I'm not a former federal prosecutor. I'm a constitutional lawyer. So we have a court in Washington, D.C. The circuit court. Then we have lower courts in Washington, D.C. Twelve active district judges as well as judges on what they call senior status. I'm not going to go through again for you what we've talked about before here and on Fox and on Levin TV. But the majority of the judges at the trial level, the district court level, are Obama and Clinton appointees. And of those, most of them are Obama appointees. And he selected the most radical bomb throwers he possibly could And they're now judges. Now these are flesh and blood people. These are lawyers who are picked from obscurity and they become federal judges for life. You know, people talk about term limiting this, term limiting that. I don't necessarily disagree with them, by the way. 
But nobody talks about term limiting, specifically the federal judges in Washington, D.C. So, number one, I want to put that on the table. That that is something we should add to a list of constitutional amendments we want. I know it's difficult. But we must term limit those judges because it is extraordinarily powerful part of our judiciary, way out of line with what the framers ever had in mind. That's number one. Number two, we have a cabal. Whenever you have a cabal, you have tyranny. And we've recognized that throughout American history. The Constitution is concerned about cabals. That's why we have separation of powers. That's why we have checks and balances. That's why we have federalism. That's why we have the Ninth Amendment, where you have individual rights, as, as declared in the Declaration of, De- of Independence. That's what the Ninth Amendment's all about. People, we're not sure what the Ninth Amendment means. That's what it means. It's the connection to the Declaration. Now, if we have economic monopolies, we have antitrust laws that were passed at the beginning of the last century. I don't necessarily agree with them, but there they are. Now, what are they there for? To prevent monopolies. Now, there's no more dangerous monopoly than the monopoly of one party controlling a judicial district in this country, which is Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is the most partisan Democrat city in the United States. Whether you're talking about the ruling class or whether you're talking about the population. 94% of the population that voted, voted for Biden. You only see those numbers with Hamas. You only see those numbers in, in Russia, in China, in North Korea, in dictatorships throughout our own hemisphere. You don't see those numbers in a functioning republic. 94%? What would happen if Washington, D.C. was filled with a population of Republicans who voted 94% for Donald Trump? And Joe Biden is indicted by two grand juries in Washington, D.C. And we have a majority of Reagan and Trump appointed judges and some of them let's say are in your face radicals for the right you think there'd be squeals and hollers and all the rest from the democrat party from the media of course there would Now, since the beginning of Congress, we've had Judiciary Acts. Without a Judiciary Act, we wouldn't have any of these lower courts. And the Judiciary Act also directs the Department of Justice and prosecutors throughout the country. Sometimes it it provides for sentencing guidelines and so forth and so on. The criminal code is adopted by statute. Congress has a lot of say in this, purposely. 
Congress is supposed to be made up of our representatives. When you have what are lifetime appointed Democrats, lifetime appointed bomb-throwing, radical, Marxist, and left-wing judges who are abusing their authority, who are using their positions, who are using these courtrooms and their lifetime appointments to destroy this country, to destroy our legal system, our constitutional system, to destroy the Bill of Rights, to destroy the rights of defendants, to have due process, probable cause, a joy of their peers, real peers, then you have nothing. We have this idea of judicial review. Where's judicial review in the Constitution? Nowhere. Find it. If you find the term judicial review in the Constitution, I'll give you $5,000. Go ahead, look. Judicial review is an implied power. Somebody has to make a decision. We have these courts. There have been big books written about them trying to convince you and me that it's really a solid power. No, it's an implied power. You read the Constitution in context, you can see the judiciary is to be and was to be very weak. The Federalist Papers tell us the judiciary is and was to be very weak. These men didn't fight a revolution for judicial review and a judiciary. They fought a revolution for representative government. That's what they did. Not lifetime appointed district and circuit court judges. It's time to reform the judiciary. It's time to reform the judiciary in Washington, D.C. It's time to break up this cabal of Marxist ideologues who don't give a damn about due process and the rights of defendants if the Republicans, or if his name is Donald Trump. And I sit here really appalled. Appalled, disgusted. They're not a single Republican in the House of Representatives. Despite all the talk, not one has been talking about this. Not one has presented a Judiciary Act. Not one. That would break up the cabal in Washington, D.C. and move some of these subject matters into other jurisdictions, which would have much more balanced and fair grand jurors, much more balanced and fair trial juries, closer to 50-50 or even 70-30, but 95-5? to And they should break up the judicial cabal in Washington, D.C. at the circuit court level, which was expanded and packed by Obama and Reid, and the D.C. court level. Congress shouldn't sit on its hands, certainly not the Republicans, and pretend there's nothing they can do about this. At least start pushing the agenda, the agenda being a just and fair and balanced judiciary. That's not what we have in Washington, D.C. You cannot, cannot get a fair trial. It is impossible. When you have judges like Beryl Howe, Chudkin, Jackson, a long list of reprobates, 
And that proposed legislation be it should be attached to everything. Spending bills, debt limit bills, every damn bill. And fight for it. Because you're fighting for the country. Break up that court in Washington, D.C. The district courts and the circuit court. Take authority away from them and give it to other parts of the country, other jurisdictions, other judges who know what their real role is and other citizens in a more balanced and objective community.